dear ones. You're listening to the What God Is Not podcast with Father Michael O'Loughlin and Sister Natalia. Glory to Jesus Christ, Sister. Glory to Him forever, Father. Christ is almost born. Not even. You can't say. You really can't say almost close. glorify Him. <laughs> <laughs> Christ is almost born makes sense. Almost glorify Him does not. Um. Well, this, but we should glorify Him at out, all times. So it could be Christ is almost born. Glorify him. Exactly. Exactly. That's good. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I, <clears throat> I'm i going to sound probably pretty bad on this podcast because I have had a cough for like uh, probably like three weeks now. I don't have COVID, <clears throat> but I'm going to have to probably clear my throat sometimes and stuff. But I think mm. it's because of my asthma. When I get sick and I get a cough, it just, the cough lasts for a really long time. So Okay. And it's actually cold where you are. Yeah, it's really cold. We had a huge snowstorm today, Mm. last night. um, And it's my snow shoveling week. And so I shoveled for over an hour this morning. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. That was my job in seminary was to wake up every morning at four to look out the window to see if it it snowed or not. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't like that because then I don't want it to snow. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I know, it, was, it was only my job. I was the only seminarian with that job. We, we didn't like alternate go week to week. It was just, that's why I was the one who shoveled snow. Oh man. Yeah. I, I really like shoveling the snow though. So that's good. Oh, not me. I mean, I, I liked it, but I would much rather like wake up, see that it snowed, get my coffee, stare at it and stare at some other punk seminarian doing the shoveling <laughs> and laugh at him from my, the warmth of my seminary room. Instead, they were laughing at me. Have I, have I ever, do you know if I've told the story on this podcast about the snow shoveling episode from a couple of years ago? I don't think so. I don't even know if I've heard it. So, um, yeah. Um, the, um, a couple of years ago, there were like three snowstorms in one week and it was my snow shoveling week. And so I was just, I love shoveling snow, but eventually it gets to the point where it's like, okay, your back is hurting a lot. You're shoveling a lot. And I mean, the other nuns were, were helping out too. They didn't just like abandon me. But, um, but anyways, I sent a picture to Father Travis of all of the, of the like immense amounts of snow outside. And I said, <laughs> I said, all in all, Jesus is a good hubby, but he could step it up a bit in the snow shoveling department. And then I kid you not, 10 minutes later, maybe less, our snow plow shows up. And for the first time, um, he actually gets out of the plow and starts shoveling all of our walks. And I was wow. like, so my motto became wine and you shall receive. <laughs> I like that. So, yeah. It kind of happened again this morning because our plow hadn't come and we were expecting a Pustinic, a Pustinia guest in like 40 minutes. And I thought if if the plow doesn't come, I'm going to have to go out there and shovel by hand enough of our parking lot that this guy can pull in and Mm -hmm. um, that this priest can pull in. And I called the snow plow and they were like, we'll find out when they're coming um, and then we'll call you back. And five minutes later, the plow is here. Nice. And just as I was going outside to shovel by hand. So Cool. All right. To the liturgy. Oh, no. To uh, anything from last time? 
Someone said to me, oh. you are the most laid back I, like podcast sister and sister Natalia is very organized. And so we, she, we always hit the, we always hit our organization things cause of you, or I would just kind of go into the topic. <laughs> um, that's not true. I'm not that organized. Um, I, so I do have something, but it's actually from, it's from a, a few episodes ago. Um, but I meant to bring this up, and I don't think I did. Did I? Did I bring up the um, the reflection I had in prayer about alas, a light of my eyes? Where has your beauty gone? I don't think I did. I don't remember. Let me see. I don't think I did. Eleven twenty-five. Uh... Just do it again. Okay. I'm sorry for everyone if I already brought this up, but I was thinking. So when we did the when we did the episode, um, I think we called it What's Your Type on the different types of Mary, like mm-hmm. Unburnt Bush and Overshadowed Mountain and Jacob's Ladder and things like that. Um, we had talked about one of our hymns that we have at Matins in which we say we're putting words in Mary's mouth at the at the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And and we say that, that she says, um, or that she's thinking, alas, O light of my eyes, where has your beauty gone? Mm. And we were talking about the the beauty of that line. But because of that, I, I took it to prayer um, on my next Pustinia after that. And <clears throat> I was I was struck by there's there's something about I was thinking about the the beauty of God because because God is beauty and to to say where has your beauty gone? I think there's great wisdom in putting this into the mouth of the Theotokos because it's like the implication is the beauty has gone somewhere. It couldn't just disappear. And I was thinking of it as sort of like the the law of conservation of energy, um, which is that within any isolated system, energy can't just disappear like it has to go somewhere and so so it might be that like um if if an object comes to rest it might be that the the kinetic energy the the energy of it moving has transferred into potential energy of it being still but but there's always the same amount of energy this is the law of of conservation of energy and i was thinking of this um as applying to the beauty of god like all of the beauty is always there and so so i like the question of where has your beauty gone and so applying this to the crucifixion i was just praying with the thought that that his beauty has gone in some sense into his wounds and um and part of the the proof of this in my mind being that he has his wounds in his glorified body even like when he appears mm-hmm. after the resurrection he still has the wounds and and that the beauty the beauty is there in his wounds because it's his his wounds are the evidence of his love for us and his um his death for us and um yeah i don't know i just want to share mm-hmm. that yeah i love how you brought science into uh into it and i never would have thought it had to go somewhere but you the scientist that makes sense and um and it would be it would be also be a very i don't a world is the wrong word but a very human uh thing to say 
the beauty is somewhere where it's just not obvious. You you have mm-hmm. to have the eyes of faith to see it as beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's also the eyes of faith within the fallen world because for you know in Adam and Eve in an ideal world wounds would not be a thing of beauty. But but it's right. it's in the context of the fallen world and our sin that Christ suffered since he didn't have to so it becomes it becomes a gift a beautiful gift and the wounds are just evidence of that so anyway it's it's really interesting to think you know Christ like you said Christ resurrected body still has the wounds so even though we want to see the resurrected body in our resurrected body one day as perfect is it still going to have the marks of this world is it going to have the marks of the fact that we are fallen and we had that we had to live in a fallen world and so it's not just like all of those memories are erased, but they've become, they've become transformed and fulfilled in the beauty of heaven. So we'll still, we'll still somehow have our wounds from this world in heaven, but they will be seen as, as truly beautiful rather than debilitating as they were here. But I, I, that's hard because people, in, 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 in some senses, we don't want those wounds at all. Some people have much more debilitating wounds than, you know, my bald head. I won't. I won't mention anything on you. But um, like, like, like what, 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 whatever, whatever wounds there are, we're like, I just want them gone. I mean, mm-hmm. imagine if you know abuse or you know anything that was a real, real deep wound, and I, I don't want those in heaven. I don't even want the marks of them in heaven. I want them to be completely, completely gone. So that's a whole other aspect of meditation upon what what Christ's wounds look like in the resurrected body. All right. Um, so I, I'm in Phoenix right now for uh, Bishop Gerald Dino's funeral. And I forgot to bring the book where I had marked where we left off last time. So I did listen. I did listen to the end of the last one that comes out tomorrow. This is December 1st as they were recording. Um, that comes out tomorrow. And it's, I literally said at the end of the podcast, like I have marked it. I will know exactly where we were. And <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. Anyway, I listen to it and I know I know exactly where we are. Because I even mentioned the angels in the. Uh, by the way, so what we're doing is we're um, we're progressing through the anaphora, through the offering, the consecration of the uh, divine liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom. So the last part of our conversation last time was about the the um, paradox of the kingdom of God being here but not yet being. Um, fully established and yet not perfected. And so we are in the, uh, right before the holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. And we're, we're talking about the, uh, a little bit of the angels. Um, let me think. I think we ended it and you brought us to heaven and gave us your kingdom to come. So just that phrase, you brought us to heaven and gave us your kingdom to come, not your kingdom, your kingdom to come. So we're, 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 we're literally remembering in our minds, the kingdom that had the, the, the second coming of Christ, the establishment of the final kingdom <laughs> in its final form, and all there will be is heaven, is heaven and hell. So, um, so that, that, that kind of awkward, beautiful, I was awkward in a human way, beautiful. St. <laughs> um, <laughs> John Chrysostom kind of a little bit awkward. Let's, let's <laughs> be, be honest here. Um, not at all. Uh, so the next line is then, for all of this, we thank you. 
and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit for all that we know that we do not know for the manifest and the hidden benefits bestowed upon us. We also thank you for this liturgy which you are pleased to accept from our hands even though there stand before you thousands of archangels, tens of thousands of angels, cherubim and seraphim, six-winged, many-eyed, soaring aloft on their wings. So we'll get into that in a moment. Um, before the angels though, we have this, this line, um, we thank you, again, Eucharistia, I'm actually, I, I know I'm saying that wrong. Ev, anyway, the, the, the Greek pronunciation, I always say Eucharistia, which I think is something, but Father Nathan preached upon it. My, my new uh, vicar preached on it on Sunday and he used a very different word. So I need, I need to look up the Greek to actually see what I'm referring to here. Um, anyway, so um, we, now we, before, before the consecration begins, we're now thanking God. Um, and I love how this, this mentions the, the responsibility that we have, the vocation even that we have of being thankful. So, and we're, we're, we're making sure we're covering all of our bases for all that we know and that we do not know for the manifest and the hidden benefits bestowed upon us. That's, that's very Pauline. Paul um, tends to write in couplets. You also see it in the Psalms. It's kind of a Semitic thing where you, you kind of say the same thing twice. You just say it slightly mm-hmm. differently to emphasize the point. Um, the th- for what we know and do not know for the manifest and the hidden benefits bestowed upon us. And then we thank you for this liturgy, which you're pleased to accept, even though, and then we get to the angels. Um, so just the making sure all of our bases are covered. It's like the Feast of All Saints, right? That we Byzantines celebrate the Sunday after Pentecost. Um, the, we're, we're making sure that we've, we've asked for the intercession of all the saints at least once a year. And once the divine, at least once in the divine liturgy, we're making sure that we are thankful for all the things that we know we should be thankful for, but also acknowledging that there are lots of gifts and benefits God has given us that we do not know about. Mm-hmm. And so when we include that in the prayer, we're, we're, we're covering all of our bases, but also acknowledging that there are lots of things, there are lots of blessings that I cannot count when these who count your blessings. There's a lot of things in, and um, acknowledging at least once in the divine liturgy um, that God has given me a lot more even than I'm aware of. Yeah, that's great. I like the comparison to All Saints Sunday. I think that's really good. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right. So then we continue on. And then right when I finished last time, we commemorate, we acknowledge that this thanksgiving, this praise, uh, this offering is happening perfectly in heaven um, by Jesus to the Father. And the praise, the sacrifice of praise is being done perfectly by the angels. So we thank you for this liturgy, which we are pleased to accept from our hands. In other words, we're, we're being very humble here. We're saying, thank you, Lord, that, that you've allowed us to offer this liturgy here on earth. Um, again, this is how many, how many Catholics think that, you know, think that the, the mass, the liturgy is just a burden. It's something that if I don't do it, I'll feel guilty. And here we're saying, we are also thanking you for, for being able to do what is happening in heaven and you're allowing us, you're humble enough to allow us to do it imperfectly here on earth as well. And what an immense uh, <clears throat> dignity, what an immense benefit it is for us to be able to participate and to offer this divine liturgy. And so we say, we thank you for, for accepting this liturgy from our hands, even though there stand before you thousands of archangels, tens of thousands of angels, cherubim, seraphim, six-winged, many-eyed, soaring aloft on their wings, singing, shouting, crying aloud, and saying the triumphal hymn. And then, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are filled. So we, we, we then sing 
the words of the angels. So we're saying, we're gonna now take their place here on earth and we're gonna sing the holy, holy, holy that they are doing perfectly in heaven, but we are going to, we are going to um, thank God for his gifting us with the ability to represent them here on earth mm. as, a, as the kind of the, the capstone of that Thanksgiving. Hmm. Any thoughts, sister? Yeah, I'm, no, I'm just thinking of um, of it. Just it's it's one of those things that I think that we we too often can just kind of take for granted or not even see the beauty in, or you know, it's like we need to recapture our childlike wonder <laughs> at um, at how incredible some of the things are that are that are in our our life and in our spirituality and. And I'm just realizing this is something that I often just kind of blow past in liturgy in my mind and don't really enter into is like God desires our worship <laughs> mm-hmm. and and appreciates and loves and embraces our worship when he has all of the archangels and all of the angels. And, and yet like he wants this communion with us. And that's just, I don't know, that's just really astounding. And it's something that I think that I, I usually just don't really think about. Yeah. It was, it was heart-wrenching and beautifully heart-wrenching in seminary to say, if you are a priest and you're about to celebrate the liturgy on a Sunday morning for all of your people and every, every weekend there's a divine liturgy and the intention is for the people. So if you're a pastor, you're celebrating a divine liturgy, you can't have like, you can't say, oh, Father, can the Sunday divine liturgy be for my deceased grandmother? Mm-hmm. No, the Sunday Divine Liturgy is always for the people. It's for the people that are gathered. It's for the parishioners. Um, and so, um, oh man, I just totally spaced where I was going with that. Um, Divine Liturgy is for the people, um, the priest. Uh, oh, that's where I was. The, uh, so in other words, the priest has to offer it. He has to. So if, if I'm a layman, I can, if I, if I have sinned, like committed deadly sin, committed mortal sin, I can just go up for a blessing or just stay in the pew or you know stay standing there. As a priest, I have to receive. Like I, as a priest, I cannot consecrate and then not receive. Mm-hmm. So there is this this horrible, but but convicting, but very, you know, man, humbling aspect. Whereas if I if I've if I've committed a deadly sin, a mortal sin, like I still need to receive, you know mm-hmm. that that that's that's an essential as a priest, that is an essential part of it. So there's something about that. Um, you stand in the place of Christ, you know, when you celebrate the liturgy, you you stand as the one offering it for the people. You have that ministerial call. Um, but man, you know, get to confession sap. But it's it's just very convicting to say. Yeah, this that's your it's it's part of your role. You cannot not receive. Hmm. And most of I mean, most of our parishes don't have two priests. That's very rare. And so it's not even like you could just go to confession to the oh, other yeah. priest right before yeah. liturgy or anything like that. Like it's right. just, yeah. Yeah, so it's one of those it's one of those really awkward things where you just can't think too much about it. You know, is God what do I do? You know, what do I do? You receive, that's what you do. That, that's your job. You know, it's your yeah. job to, to conservate, it's your job to receive. And so, uh, so you need to do it and, and then get to confession as soon as possible, yeah. Um, 
Okay. So uh, yeah, the, the singing, shouting, crying aloud, and saying. Uh, this blew my mind the first time I, I learned this, but um, in, God, I should have looked this up beforehand. Um, let me see. It's not in here. Oh, wait. I don't think it is. Anyway, I'm not quite sure of the scripture passage. I know it's in Revelation. I think it's also in Isaiah. Um, if I'm wrong, I'll correct myself last, ne- last next time. But the uh, the four the four creatures, the four and the four faces of the the ox, the lion, the man, and the eagle. So these are. I know it's in Revelation. It might be in Isaiah two um, or Ezekiel. That's what I need to find out. But anyway, one of the prophets and, and the book of Revelation, we have these these four um, angelic faces. Um, and so I believe it was Irenaeus and many other fathers of the church have now taken those and applied them to the four gospel writers. So um, like Irenaeus would say, uh, and again, I hope I get this right. I'm gonna do a lot of corrections <laughs> if, I, if, I got, if I got this father wrong. Um, anyway, but he would say, and again, different fathers have, have described this different ways, but he would say that um, when you look at the beginning of the gospels, you can, you can, decide based upon the beginning and there's different, again, different ways of applying these, but um, the beginning of Mark's gospel begins with Zechariah offering a sacrifice. And so that gospel and, and Mark is represented by an ox because an ox is, is one of the things sacrificed hmm. and sacrifices of, of Zechariah. Then you have Matthew. Matthew begins with, with the human genealogy of Jesus. And mm-hmm. so the man represents the gospel of Matthew. Mark oh, begins with- I'm sorry, I, I got that wrong. Mark, Mark begins with, uh, Luke begins with the sacrifice of Zachariah. Okay, we'll I was like, out. you already said Mark. <laughs> no, we won't. Luke, excuse me, Luke obviously begins because it's the, it's the infancy narrative. So Luke uh-huh. begins with the Zachariah in the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Luke is the ox. Mark is the lion because Mark begins with, with John the Baptist crying out in the desert. And so it's like a lion crying out in the desert. And so Mark is represented by, by a, a, a lion. You, you know, St. Mark's Coffee Shop in Denver, right, sister? Remember that? What? St. Mark's Coffee Shop in Denver on 17th? No, I don't, no? I don't okay. think I've ever been there. Okay, St. Mark's, it's, it's owned by a Greek Orthodox guy, but there, there's lions everywhere. And it, oh, it's, that's because St. Mark is lions. And then John is, is the, the bird or the eagle. Um, and and one of the explanations is, is that his theology soars above the rest, um, mm. like an eagle soars, just because he lived longer and it's a much more philosophical gospel than the three synoptics, et cetera. So let me say that again, just since I messed it up in the beginning. Luke is an ox because of the sacrifice of Zachariah in the beginning of it. Again, this is one of many explanations uh, and different ways of looking at it. Um, Mark is a lion because John the Baptist is crying out in the desert, make way, the la- make way, um, prepare your hearts for the Lord. In other words, make, make make way for him. And then Matthew, because the genealogy is a human and John, because his theology soars above the rest, is the um, eagle. So when the priest then, at this point, he he takes the the little star. I talked about the star when we were talking about the proskomedia um, ritual. He takes the star, this uh, or an asterisk, we call it a, a four-legged um, like beautiful, sacred metal, uh, I don't know how else to describe it, um, stand, if you will, that keeps the, the cloth off of the bread. So when you have the discos- It, it you, almost looks like, <laughs> when, it's, when it's unfolded, it almost looks mm-hmm. like the little table thing that goes in the middle of a pizza. There we go. And it, it actually serves the same purpose. 
<laughs> so, so you know, you know when you when you order a pizza and they have that little plastic <laughs> table thing that keeps the top the box from hitting the pizza, right? And so, can you hear me, sister? Yeah. Okay. So, like, like it, it keeps the it keeps the the top of the box from hitting the pizza and getting it all messy. And so, this is the same thing. It's like it's a little stand that that you can fold up and that sits on the discos, so that when you put the veil over the top of it, the veil doesn't touch the bread. Um, so you're right. That that's a good that's a good uh, similar function. Um, so so um, the priest at this point he's now uncovered the gifts, and so he takes that and he pretty much uh, the the original meaning was to to make sure that there wasn't any particles of bread still on the the asterisks on the star. Mm-hmm. So you you actually tap it on the discos to make sure there's no no um, particles of the bread. Oh. It's not it's not the body of Christ yet, but it's to kind of knock off any particles that are there. But as you're tapping it, you're, the, the congregation can usually hear the taps. And you tap, there's four legs, so you tap it, you know, one, two, three, four. And you say, singing, shouting, crying aloud, and saying the triumphal hymn. Now those those four words are, are again, we're, we're about to sing holy, 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 but those four words... Um, in the original language actually represent the sounds that those four creatures make. Oh, that is so cool. Isn't it? So, so I, don't, I don't know these because this is an English translation, um, mm-hmm. but it'd be like, um, for instance, you might say, um, singing is the eagle, shouting is the ox, crying aloud is the lion, and saying is the human. Something like that. That might not be it, but anyway, I'll have to look that up. But, but you That's actually terrible. have the, when you're, when you're commemorating the angels and you're tapping this, you're actually commemorating those, those four creatures that you see that represent the four gospel writers and that represent the angels too. Um, so in, in LA, in Sherman Oaks, we actually have <clears throat> icons of those four creatures up on the, up on the ceiling above the, uh, above the altar. So when I, preached this to the kids, I could say, you know, see, look, one of those is singing, one is shouting, one is crying aloud and saying. So let me say it again for those of you who don't know the Byzantine liturgy. So the priest would say, uh, we also thank you for this liturgy, which you are pleased to accept from our hands, even though there stand before you thousands of archangels, tens of thousands of angels, cherubim and seraphim, six-winged, many-eyed, soaring aloft on their wings, singing, shouting, crying aloud and saying the triumphal hymn. Then the people come in singing holy, 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 but that singing, shouting, crying aloud and saying, you're tapping the, the deacon, if you have a deacon, or the priest, if you don't, is tapping the four corners of this asterisk, this star to make sure there's no particles on it. But he, you can kind of hear the, the ringing of it. Uh, but those four then kind of represent the sounds made and then you go into singing the holy, holy, holy. Again, we're, we're kind of thinking a lot about the angels here. That's very cool. I've never heard that before. I can't believe I didn't preach on that when you were in Denver, actually, because that was when I like I learned when I learned that in seminary. I just thought that was so incredibly beautiful. And I mean, I'm looking... maybe you did, and I wasn't listening. That's a possibility. <laughs> or I was laughing at you. That often happened during your homeless. Uh, yes. Well, that, that was more my bad than anybody else's, though. All right. Um, I'm looking at the reference here in the Divine Liturgy book. We also thank you for the liturgy, which are pleased to accept from our hands, even though they stand before you thousands of archangels, tens of thousands of angels. So the, the, the tens of thousands of angels comes from Daniel 7.10. I don't have a Bible in front of me. Arg, arg. This is a very ill-prepared for a podcast right now. And then there's also cherubim and seraphim, six-winged. I know that. That comes from Isaiah 6. Many-eyed. That comes from Psalm 117, Matthew 21, Mark 11. Um, soaring aloft on their wings. So I'm trying to figure out where this reference to thousands of archangels comes from. 
because we normally think that there's like Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and then you have, do you have the Bible in front of you, sister? Um, you're, you're, you're sitting so still. I keep on thinking you're frozen. <laughs> like, like you're, um, you're, you're, I think, I think, I mean, I might be freezing up for you sometimes. You have, okay. you have a really bad network, so you're breaking up for me a lot. Oh, um, but, okay. I mean, it's okay. We're managing. Um, no, I don't have a Bible in front of me. Hashtag okay. none fail. Okay, well, that's, we'll have to remember um, to uh, look up this. But where, where the thousands of archangels comes, that's the question I have. Where, where do we get the term thousands of archangels when there's, I think some of the fathers said there were seven. Um, of course, we have the three that are scriptural. Um, Michael, yeah, who is the, the commander. Gabriel, who's the messenger. Uh, Raphael, who's the healer. Um, but anyway, anyways. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I've never thought about that before. Okay, well, let's put that down for uh, to look up for next time. It's been it's been sixteen years since I was in seminary, so some of these things were probably explained, and I need to look them back up again. And I'll use this podcast as a catalyst, as an encouragement. I'm going to write do it that. down because I don't believe you that you'll actually look it up. But I love you. See how much you know me. I I, I appreciate that. And also, Beth, when she listens to this, will hopefully send me text reminders of all the things I promise I do next time. Um, all right, yeah, so the, she's, she's really good about that. So then we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Um, I'm just going to find the reference to that. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. I know that's multiple places as well, but our, my handy guide here says Isaiah 6.3. For that, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Um, that is Psalm 117. Oh, that, that's the references there to, the, uh, to the, the singing of the angels. And then the priest continues. We also cry out with these blessed powers. And that's, that, that's referring to the angels then, that these blessed powers are the angels. We also cry out with these blessed powers, O loving and kind master, and say, holy are you and all holy, you and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. Holy are you and all holy and magnificent is your glory. You so loved your world that you gave your only begotten Son so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. What's the scripture reference there, sister? Um, <clears throat> you weren't, you weren't paying attention, up. were you? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Um, you so loved your world that you gave your only begotten Son so that everyone who believes oh, John in him should not. There you go. So for, for evangelicals, they think of football games and signs saying John 3.16. Uh, for us Byzantines, it's, it's right there in the Divine Liturgy and the Anaphora. That's why I have it memorized. I actually have this translation memorized because I say it every time. All right. Um, he came and fulfilled the whole divine plan in our behalf for on the night he was betrayed or rather when he surrendered himself for the life of the world. Again, he was betrayed, but there was the, it was a, a proactive betrayal, if you will. He uh, willed by God. He surrendered himself for the life of the world, we hear. He took bread and it was holy, all pure, immaculate hands, gave thanks and blessed. The priest then blesses the bread, sanctified, broke, gave it to his disciples and apostles, saying, then of course, the words of institution, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you for the remission of sins. And the people will respond, Amen. Remember that amen, it just means uh, yes. It means I agree. Um, the, so the people are, that, that's the, when the people say amen here, they are, they're affirming and in a way participating in the words that the priest just said. 
You know, I don't <clears throat> I don't remember if we've talked about this before, but this is something that I love very much about the Maronite liturgy mm-hmm. is they say the words of institution in Aramaic. Aramaic, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're actually, they're not speaking the translated words of what the Lord spoke. They're actually speaking the words that the Lord spoke. And I think that's very mm-hmm. beautiful. That is, even if, they, even if they're doing the rest of the liturgy in Arabic or in English, mm-hmm. they still do the words of consecration, take it, this is my body and, um, in Aramaic so that you're actually hearing the words Jesus said. Yeah, that is, that is really beautiful. Um, so this is... I, this is a an interesting part because again in the roman mass this is the moment of consecration once the priest says that did we go through this last time a little bit or no no we haven't we haven't okay. covered this at all so so in the roman I was mass you would, okay in the roman mass as soon as the priest says these words it is now we know the body of christ and when he says Drink of this, all of you, this is my blood. We now know it is the blood of Christ. And, and the, the words of institution are the moment of the consecration of the change from bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Um, we in the Byzantine church, this is actually not that important of a time. So what we've talked about before about the, we have the anamnesis or the, the remembrance when we recall and, and, and make present spiritually or God makes present spiritually to us events that have happened in the past. So, um, but that's not that, this isn't even technically part of that. I've always thought, you know, when we remember Christ's words, take ye, this is my body, isn't that part of the anamnesis portion of the consecration of the anaphora? And, um, and Father David Petrus, my liturgy guy says, no, it's actually, um, that's still to come. So these, and as you know, the, the anaphora of Adayamara doesn't, it's a valid anaphora according to Pope John Paul II. And it did not have, the words of institution in it. So there, there is a, mm. a valid consecration that does not have take, eat, this is my body in it. Um, and that, that can be so hard to hear and scandalous to those, to those who come from the Roman tradition that that, that is the moment, but it is the moment mm-hmm. in the Roman tradition. Um, we'll get to a moment in the, uh, the epiclesis, the second part when you caught on the Holy Spirit, that is in the Byzantine church. That's when we know that it is now the body and blood of Christ. We don't say it changes at that moment, but we know at that point that it is. Um, but that is why the Roman church actually moved the, the epiclesis to before the words of institution, because when, when the, it, was, it was understood that the words of institution were the moment of consecration, they had to call down the Holy Spirit first before that mm-hmm. so that you weren't doing that afterwards. So, but in, in the Byzantine liturgy, it's, it has is, it is remained afterwards. So the words of institution aren't really that, that there's not nearly as important as it is in the Roman mass. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to still bow. I think that might even be a Latinization though to kind of focus on those words um, as as more important than other parts of the of the same anaphora, the, the the process of consecration, this section of the liturgy. And and just to reiterate, you did say this, but I just want to reiterate, we we also don't say that the epiclesis or epiclesis, I've heard it both ways, mm-hmm. um, and probably other ways. Um, we the the calling down of the Holy Spirit, we also don't say that is the moment at which it becomes the body and blood of Christ. We just say right. we know by that point it is the body and blood of Christ. Yes. Um, so we're, we're much more, in the Byzantine church, we're much more kind of vague and open about, um, we know what happens somewhere in there, but we're not so worried about picking an exact time. We're doing what God asked us to do. He knows when it changes, but mm-hmm. it's, we, we, we're not 
we're not trying to find out when that is. We just know we're doing what he asked us to do. And so that we know at this point, it is the body blood of Christ. What exact moment is just not as, as much of a concern for those fathers in the East as it was for the fathers in the West um, to discern that. So that's why, why you're gonna get something different here. I, um, I, wanna, I wanna bring up, because I was wanting to bring this up at some point in the podcast and you just kind of touched on it. So I'd like to bring it up now. When you said that we do, you said it might be a Latinization, but we do bow during... Mm-hmm. The words of institution, <clears throat> words of consecration. Um, the I don't think we've touched on yet. Have we touched on the fact that there's no kneeling? I think so. But oh. let's do it again. I, I probably explained it. So go ahead and explain okay. it in your own words. If we yeah. Well, and and just in case in case someone's not listening to the other episodes on the divine liturgy, but um, this is the only one you're listening to, you'll you'll notice that in. In a Byzantine in a Byzantine church, there there typically there are exceptions to this, but it's it's more of a, a Latinization as as we kind of touched on. But um, in a Byzantine church, traditionally there would be no kneeling during the divine liturgy, and the reason for this is because um, kneeling in the West is a sign of humility, and this is why. Um, this is why you kneel during the consecration in a, in a Roman mass, but in the East kneeling is a sign of penance and the, the divine liturgy is not meant to be a a penitential act. It's meant to be, um, it's meant to be a celebration and, and worship. And so, um, so we don't kneel during the consecration or any other point during the divine liturgy. The, so, um, we stand, but in the, in the East, um, bowing is the sign of humility. And so there are multiple times during the liturgy, such as the words of institution and the calling down of the Holy Spirit, that we have um, we have deep bows that we do, but but there won't be kneeling. And, and you definitely wouldn't kneel after receiving communion because at this point, the, the body and blood of Christ is within you. And so um, you certainly don't want to be doing what is seen as an act of penance while the body and blood of Christ is within you. Again, to distinguish because in the in the West, kneeling is a sign of humility. And so again, it makes sense, but in the East, it's a sign of penance. So, And, and in the East, um, kneeling is always only a sign of penance as is prostrations. Bowing is more kind of the vague, because in the West, kneeling can mean penance or humility. Mm, um, and this, the same thing happens in the East where is bowing actually, we call it a metanoia, which means repentance and me, means um, conversion. So the, the kind of bowing for us is, is the, can have multiple meanings, um, but it, it also means humility. That's why we can bow at this time and not have it, or, or, or even repentance in the context of fulfillment, you know, <laughs> repentance in the context of of the the end so when we when we're after we've received the eucharist that that is why we repented we repented and we did we had conversion for this moment this is their reward at the end of a of a of a act of repentance so we we do penance every friday in order to receive the eucharist on sunday um or we do repentance multiple times during the week in order to have the fulfillment of the eucharist on on sunday just like we do repentance for the entire lent season or the fasting seasons like we're in now for philip's fast we do those in order to celebrate the feast so um bowing 
is is a uh, is kind of one of those double meaning in the east, just like kneeling is in the west. Bowing mm-hmm. does mean we call it a metony or metanoia because it does involve conversion or repentance, but it's also in the in the context of humility rather than a prostration that oh that you would never do a pro- well. I take that back. See, this is this is the hard thing because the Russians do. I think we talked about this. The Russian tradition does do prostrations during the divine liturgy, mm-hmm. you know, especially during the consecration. And that probably is a Latinization, but it's still it's still a valid tradition nowadays. So it's, mm-hmm. I think it's important it, once we get obsessed with these things, it's important to know the differences, um, but there are different traditions within Eastern Catholicism that, that, that take these things different ways. And it's just, just be very careful criticizing as, as always. Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, but it does, I th- I'm sure we talked about this before, but it, the Council of Nicaea, did say in 325 did forbid kneeling on Sundays. Mm-hmm. And the reason was is because kneeling was a a sign, a posture of penance. And and we shouldn't be doing that posture of penance on Sundays, the day of the resurrection, when we receive our Lord. Um, but Pope Benedict was very eloquent, and I know I've said this before, that um, the meaning of kneeling changed in the West. So mm-hmm. the West is not disobeying Nicaea, according to Pope Benedict, but rather the meaning of kneeling changed. So it's the spirit of of Nicaea and and what what Nicaea said about not doing penance on Sundays, um, but just the meaning of the posture changed over the past you know two thousand years, so mm-hmm. that you can and should um, kneel on Sundays in, in the Roman Church. Yeah. All right. So the priest then says, "Here the words of institution. You'll, if you're in a Byzantine parish, you'll probably see people bowing, or if in a Russian parish, you'll see them doing prostrations at this time." Likewise, he took the chalice after supper, saying, "By the way, the priest, um, when the priest is saying uh, this first part, um, gave thanks, blessed. The priest blesses the bread with his hand, sanctified, broke, etc. Here now, after the." After the the takey, this is my body. Now you have likewise. He took the chalice and then he blessed it with his hand. After supper, saying, then he says the words, "Drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the remission of sins." And the people again respond, "Amen." Now is actually the 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 explicit anamnesis. So now is the part where we we receive spiritually things that have already happened or things that will happen and we, we receive them in, in, in a spiritually in the, the outside of space and time moment of this divine liturgy. So now the priest says what is explicitly the, the um, anamnesis, remembering that anamnesis is actually that word, remembering um, therefore this saving command, which I guess I could argue with Father David and say, well, since this is the anamnesis and it points to what we just heard and the saving command, by the way, do you know, do you know what that is, sister? Uh, that was when, when the priest says, Rem- remembering therefore the saving command mm-mm. and all that has come to pass on our behalf. Mm-mm. In the liturgy of St. Basil, the priest actually says it. He says it silently, but he says it. What, what would Jesus' command be in context of the Eucharist, especially of the Last Supper and of the words of institution? I'm using the Latin term there, words of institution, but the, the, oh, the words of our Lord at the Last Supper. Um, it, I'll give you a hint. It also uses the word remember or anamnesis. Oh, um, oh, uh, I don't know. Do this. In remembrance of me. 
There we go. That's the command to do this, do this in remembrance of me. And yeah. so it's to do this in anamnesis. Um, and so when the, when, when the priest says, remembering therefore this saving command, that's what he's referring to, the command to do this in remembrance of me. Mm. And all that has come to pass in our behalf. And then he goes in the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand and the second coming in glory. So this is now the priest is is out, out outside of space and time because the whole divine liturgy is um, God is spiritually making these events present to the gathered congregation who's celebrating the divine liturgy. And he's making present to them the last supper. He's making present to them the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven and, which all happened in the past, and, this, um, and the sitting at the right hand and, which is also in the past, and the second coming in glory. So we are literally remembering what has not happened yet. Um, this is the beauty of these things being outside of space and time. This is the beauty of these historical realities and one that is will happen being made <clears throat> present to us. So this is why when we when the second coming happens, it's going to be a bit nostalgic. I feel like I've talked about this. Maybe I have. When, when the second coming happens, it will be a bit nostalgic because we, we will have already experienced it every single divine liturgy we were at through this anamnesis, mm. through this remembrance, this quote, again, dismembering and remembering. Remember means something that, that was disparate, that was separate, coming together and bring, bot, bringing, being brought back together. Um, things that have happened in the past and things that will happen in the future. So there's, we're, we're, not, not, we're not time traveling, but time is traveling to us. <laughs> we're not going anywhere. We're there in the church, but, but, but these things that have not happened yet and the things that have happened in the past are all traveling to us spiritually and we receive the graces of those moments in this divine liturgy, especially in this portion of the anaphora. Hmm. I, would, I, would even, I would even argue, I don't know if this is correct, but it, it, it seems to me like the sitting at the right hand would actually be a present, like the the things mm. before that were past. But the the sitting mm-hmm. at the right hand is is where the Lord is. Yeah, um, yeah, Amen. And so that's where he was. Past, one present and one future. Yeah. And even when God became man, He never left the right hand of God. I mean, mm-hmm. in in one sense, or never left that union with with His Father. You know, um, but the sitting at the right hand is kind of a is an, as a post ascension, the way we mm-hmm. use it is he ascended to go back to his father with his human body to sit at his, at his right hand. And so mm-hmm. in one sense, I, I mean, in one sense it is, it ne- he never left, but in another sense, now that he has human body, it is kind of a post ascension. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where he sent the spirit. He, that's from where he sent the, he sent the spirit of Pentecost from there, <laughs> from God's right hand where he sat How, with his resurrected body. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so that we is have this from where he sent the spirit. I, I I'm just going to say I was correct and not think about it too hard. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you live life? <laughs> yes, a total denial about my own ineptitude every single day, especially in my speaking. Um, <laughs> so then, uh, the priest says, "Sitting at the right hand and the second coming in glory." And then there's a colon in the text. And then uh, the deacon, or if there's no deacon, the priest takes the chalice of the discos with the, uh, this is now either bread and wine or the body and blood of Christ, but we don't, it's just, we don't really care what it is. But, but in the process of the anamnesis, in the process of the anaphora, the priest or the deacon takes 
the discos in his right hand and then takes a chalice in his left hand, crosses his arms in the, in the form of a cross and raises them up. It is my impression from actually doing this because it seems that this is how the posture would be that you're raising them up as an offering because then you, the priest says, offering you your own from your own always and everywhere offering you your own from your own always and everywhere. And just a liturgical rubrics thing. If you have two deacons, if you have a, a double deaconing situation, you have one deacon takes the, the discos in his right hand, the other deacon takes the chalice in his right hand and they cross their arms in the, in the form of a cross, just like the deacon or the priest would be if there's only one. And so it's, it's the, the gifts are, are crossed to, again, to emphasize the cross, raised up in, in a form of offering, And then the priest says, the celebrant says, offering you, meaning God the Father, your own from your own, meaning God the Son. So we are offering you, God the Father, we are offering you your Son always and everywhere. So again, this is kind of the outside of space and time. This is the glory to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever, amen. Now and ages of ages, amen. It's it's a the, this doxology, this glory is, is something that pervades all time and space, and that this when Christ when Christ offered Himself to the Father once and for all as the only High Priest, we don't need another High Priest after Him. This has eternal consequences, not just meaning eternal as in like lasting forever, but being outside of space and time. So mm-hmm. I'm offering you your own from your own, always and everywhere. So the what Christ did and our ability to participate in what He did now touches eternity. Just like if, if, if someone gets pregnant and then they have a miscarriage, you know, that, that's a human life. That's a human life. They have, they have, even if they never get to experience that child in the world, they still affected eternity because now there's mm-hmm. another soul, another human in existence that there wasn't before. So even if we don't get to experience that through, you know, miscarriage or, or stillbirth or anything like that, that, that still, that child of course still exists. And then you, you, you parents have, have affected eternity for all time. There, there will never be a time when, when like before that event, when that child did not exist. Now the child exists and he will exist for all eternity. Um, but the, there's something beautiful here because what we're saying is, is something that, that, those who don't understand the Eucharist the way we do, Christians who don't understand it, um, we we are we're offering to God, and we talk about you know what do we offer to God? We we give these certain these an offering is another word again for anaphora. But the, what are the various things that we offer to God? We offer God our life, we offer God our stuff, we offer Him our personality, right? All these all these tithings, time, treasure, talent, you know, all these things. But but Christ offered Himself to God, and we need to offer our entire self to God too. But none of that is worthy. Our our offering ourselves is not worthy of God. The only thing worthy, the only worthy offering to God the Father, is God the Son. That that's because because he it's a perfect unblemished calf. It's the perfect offering, the perfect sacrifice. So the the again the dignity of being able to say we offer to you your own from your own. We offer the we offer you the worthy the only worthy sacrifice. And you gave us the dignity to offer you your own from your own. So if I offer myself, totally unworthy. It's not it's not worthy of God. He deserves so much more. But I have the ability to offer God. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that literally is the perfect, only perfect, only worthy offering. And here we are doing it every single divine liturgy. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. This seems like a pretty direct reference to, um, to Hebrews. Um, 
the that there's there's one sacrifice for all, um, one high mm-hmm. priest, exactly, and, and all of that. Yeah, yeah, very much so, very much so. All right, um, I'm just looking at our time because we we had to chop this one. So yeah, I think we're about fifty 40, minutes. 50, yep, we're getting close. I, I want to go through the. I want to get through the uh, epiclesis okay. and make sure we cover that. But um, please do, obviously, sister, share your thoughts, um, and we can. We don't need to. We don't need to go. So um, offering you your own from your own, always and everywhere, and then the people sing. We praise you. We bless you. We thank you, O Lord, and we pray to you, our God. Um, so this is this is tying in our sacrifice of praise with the offer of Christ, offering of Christ. We praise you, we bless you, we thank you, O Lord, and we pray to you, our God. The priest then continues. Now this is the uh, this is the epiclesis. So this is the the second essential part of the anaphora. There's the anamnesis, which we just did, the remembrance. Now the epiclesis, or the the petitioning, the offering, the calling down of the Holy Spirit to actually change the gifts. The priest says, moreover, we offer you this spiritual spiritual and unbloody sacrifice and we implore, pray, and entreat you. Send down your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts lying here before us. If there's a deacon, he says, Reverend Father, bless the holy bread. Again, this is his role as master of ceremonies. The priest responds, and make this bread the precious body of your Christ. The deacon responds, amen. Reverend Father, bless the holy chalice. The priest says, and that which is in this chalice, the precious blood of your Christ. The deacon responds, amen. The deacon says, Reverend Father, bless both. The priest says, changing them by your Holy Spirit. And the deacon responds, amen, amen, amen. The celebrant continues that for those who partake of them, they may bring about a spirit of vigilance, the remission of sins, the communion of your Holy Spirit, the fullness of the heavenly kingdom for confidence in you, not for judgment or condemnation. And then they bow. At that point, we know it is the body and blood of Christ. So at that bow, that's what the, kind of what that bow is. It's a, it's bowing in acknowledgement of what just happened. What was bread and wine is now the body and blood of Christ. And that happens through <clears> both of those parts, the anamnesis, the remembrance, as in every prayer, and also the epiclesis, the calling down of the Holy Spirit. It's not us who does it, it's the Holy Spirit who does it, of course, but he uses, he uses the priest um, to do that. Changing them by your Holy Spirit. Yeah. Thought, sister? No, it's great. a lot of bows in here too and the, these acknowledgements of again in, in humility and conversion and repentance uh, what the priest is saying we implore pray and entreat you he's doing three bows um, again it, I think there's, it's just this acknowledgement of the, of the power of the moment um, this is the most important thing that has ever and will ever happen mm-hmm. and we're participating it in that moment and on all these historical past, present, future, things are all coming together and, and God became man for this moment. We're about to participate in that. And this is where the beauty of this, this offering of, of Jesus Christ to the Father. And then we are able to, in our human way, you know, go through these beautiful rituals and, and say these beautiful words. And I mean, it's, it's even, to, even to think, even to think that, you know, the priest is literally calling down the Holy Spirit and we know that the Spirit's gonna come. You know, it's it's like it's like the prophet Elijah calling down fire upon the the sacrifice. You know, and pour water on it, pour more and more water on it, and the the the, the pagan priests are you know pouring water and calling down you know their gods to light the light the wood on fire. And 
and uh, and they you know the, the nothing happens and Elijah mocks him and says oh is, is your God asleep you know is he is he drunk and then then they so he calls down fire and like and it burns up everything like that that's such a powerful moment that we say man it wouldn't it be nice to if we could call down the <laughs> call down God to light a sacrifice that's what we're doing here the priest mm-hmm. is literally calling down and the Holy Spirit is responsive God Himself is responding to the call of the priest here and, and the, the congregation that, that are asking him to be effective. It's, we're, we're in a sense asking for a sign and we're getting it every single time. And uh, it's just, and that's why, again, I'm sure we've talked about it, but losing the Lord's name in vain. Whenever we use the Lord's name, it's a calling upon him. And every single time we call upon him, he comes. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's the humility and, and the, the power that God has given us. And that's why if we use the Lord's name in vain, if we call upon him, then that ignore him because he comes and, you know, what do you need? And we just ignore him because we actually were cursing because we dropped something on our toe or something like that. That's just the, the humility of God and the power that we have to call upon God whenever we need him. The access mm-hmm. we have through God becoming man in Jesus Christ and the access that we have to call upon him at any time. But in, in this role as a ministerial priest, in his, in his role as a minister and representative of the people and of Jesus, you know, it's, just, it's the most amazing thing in the world that God... When, when the priest says these words and calls upon the Holy Spirit, he always comes and always changes it into the Eucharist and we always are able to receive. And I, I mean, this is why, <laughs> this is why it's so heartbreaking when we fall into what you referenced earlier, when we, when we fall into this way of thinking that the divine liturgy or the mass is just our obligation and it's this mm-hmm. thing that we have to do and, and it's, it's seen as this like burden is the word you used. Um, when it's when it's actually meant to be a lightening of all of our burdens, and and it's supposed to be um, the moment at which we can we can come to Him um, because we're weary, and um, yeah, and so it's and I mean I've I've fallen into this myself many times. You know, it's like there have even been times as a nun that I'm like, oh man, I have to I have to go to divine liturgy now, and I have so much that I need to do today, and um, and. Yeah, and it's just it's just sad. It's another it's another moment of like not really realizing what's happening. And it's it's we're so caught up with other things that we're completely denying the present moment, which is the moment that God gives us that is all of these moments together. Um mm-hmm. and yeah. And I, I think, you know, there's like that's the humility of God. The humility of God is the fact that he knows that in the past, present, and future, we're not going to appreciate this. He, and that's why we say, you know, for the benefits bestowed upon us, whether manifest or hidden, whether, you know, known or unknown, like this is, this is why we have that ritual because we will never appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Going, and we still never will. I mean, it's so far beyond us that we will never understand or appreciate the gift that this is. And so God knows that. And so, you know, also when you're hearing this, like don't let the devil convince you that, 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 that you... The, like, don't let him lead you to shame for knowing that you've you've struggled with that in the past, with with you know dragging yourself to church because of obligation rather than out of any sense of joy. You know that's going to continue. We just we just hope to get better about it. But I mm-hmm. think think like meditation upon it like this, and let every let every mass, every divine liturgy be more and more of a a moment of. Lord, help me to appreciate this for what it is. Let me stand in awe of the great gift you've given me mm-hmm. of my own prayer, especially of the prayer of the divine liturgy or the mass. Um, and, and yet when I do fall, you know, bring it to confession. I mean, I, I know a lot of examination of consciences have that in them. You know, have I, 
Have I let my mind wander at mass? Have I have I kind of not appreciate or even tried to appreciate the beauty of what this is that I'm participating in, et cetera? Yeah. So find that healthy balance there. We have a loving father who loves us and guides us and yet calls us and convicts us to always grow in appreciation and we need to be responding to that. Mm-hmm. All right, I think this is a good time to end. Yeah. It's a good place to end right after the anaphora and the rest of it should go a little bit quicker because the anaphora was such a deep, beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. The rest of the final should go quicker next time. So prayer intentions? Hmm. I'm going to say go ahead and pray for uh, Father Nathan's mom. Uh, Teresa, my, my new vicar's mom has both COVID and pneumonia. And uh, obviously both of those are lung issues and he says she's in good spirits today, um, but that's why we ran out here to Phoenix a little bit early. And I, he, he let me share this intention somewhere else. I'm sure he doesn't mind me doing it here. Um, but just pray for yeah, Teresa. Um, they call her Terry, uh, but Father Nathan's mother. And, um, and also pray for just a private intention of mine that God knows what it is. Um, that would be great. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm gonna ask that you pray for a couple from my parents' parish. Um, I got to see them while I was there for Thanksgiving. And I won't share their name because I don't know if they would want me to, but um, beautiful couple, uh, married two beautiful daughters and a son on the way. So, um, but they're, um, they could use some prayers right now. So if you could just pray for them. Amen. All right. Well, we're not recording years next, correct? So we'll. Correct. We'll do that later on. Yeah. Cool. We're having spiritual direction now. Yeah, I'm so used to like doing two in a row. So, yeah. Anyway, okay, cool. All right, uh, I'll finish the blessing then. May the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, have mercy on you. May our Lord grant you peace. May he allow you more and more to appreciate the great dignity and the ability you've been given as a baptized person to call upon him and to be assured of his response, to be assured of his presence. May you always fight the temptation to take the Lord's name in vain in any way. May you fight the temptation to only go to church out of a sense of guilt. May you always grow more and more every day in appreciation of the great dignity you've been given once again and that the church has been given as the body of Christ. May you always remember to pray for priests and to pray for deacons and pray for bishops and pray for all those who who have the, the responsibility to even if they are in sin still celebrate and participate in Christ's offering of himself to his father in this immense dignity that we are never worthy of. May you always with humility and with penance um, look forward to the celebrations that are given to us. And especially in this Philip's fast, may you look forward to with ever greater eagerness and zeal, the coming of our Lord in his nativity. May the Lord bless you in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Love you. Love you too. Bye all. Be well. Bye.